Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, God makes promises, and God keeps promises. He promised almost immediately after the fall that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, that great cosmic gospel promise of final, total victory of the kingdom of heaven over the kingdom of darkness. He promised right from the beginning, right after the fall, the destruction of sin and death. And all through the scriptures, God makes promises which fit into, which tie in to this great cosmic promise that he gives there in Genesis chapter 3. He promised that he would bring Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. He promised that he would defeat their enemies. He promised that the descendants of Abraham would be like stars and like the sand of the seashore, that Israel would be a great nation. He promised that there would be a king forever on the throne of David. He promised that he would bring his people back from exile. He promised to forgive the sins of his people, to remember their transgressions no more, to separate them from their transgressions as the east is as far from the west, and to cast their iniquities into the very depth of the sea. He promised to give his people a new heart. He promised to pour out his Holy Spirit on his people. He promised to send the prophet greater than Moses, the king greater than David, the priest greater than Aaron or Melchizedek. He promised to send the Messiah, the Christ, anointed to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And every promise that God gave throughout all the centuries, throughout all of the Old Testament dispensation, God kept. We read the second letter of Peter, chapter 1, and Peter says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Why does he say that? Because he saw with his eyes the answer and the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. Peter saw with his eyes the one in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. And you would think, well, that's, that's incredible, that's wonderful, that's glorious, and how can it get any better than that? But it does. Because when the Lord Jesus comes and he fulfills all of God's promises, he takes things to a new level. Because in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we begin to understand as the church of God that all of the promises of God in the Old Testament are so much deeper and so much wider than God's people ever imagined. That it's not just the promise of liberation from Egypt, but it is the promise of liberation from sin. That it's not just the promise of being brought to Canaan, the promised land, 
but it is the promise of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And it's not just the promise of a great and mighty nation of Israel, but that the promise is of an uncountable number of the elect. And it's not just long life in Canaan, but that the promise is of eternal, never-ending life in a perfectly restored universe. And as Peter says, these are precious and very great promises. Now, there are so many Old Testament promises that have been fulfilled in Christ in, the, in his conception, his birth, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. There are still some promises that we're waiting to be fulfilled. And Peter speaks about that in chapter 3 of his second letter, chapter 3, verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then John says in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 25, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Now, we read the first chapter of the second letter of Peter, and he spoke about these precious and very great promises, and he connects them with two things. First of all, he connects them with escaping the corruption of the world because of evil desire. That's on the one hand. And on the other hand, he connects it with being, becoming partakers of the divine nature. Or to put it as Paul writes about it, we are being transformed from glory to glory after the image of of Christ. We, we look more and more like Christ. We think more and more like Christ. We act more and more like Christ. Those are the great and precious promises of God in Christ that, that our sins, our corruption, our shame, our guilt are washed away. They're gone. We're clean. But that's just the one side. The other side is that he pours his grace and truth and love into us so that we come to life more and more as newness of life wells up in us and as we bring forth the fruit of the Holy Spirit and as we begin to, to reflect more and more the very image of Christ our Savior. And as the Holy Spirit works these glorious promises in us, we are like little Christs in the world, bringing light and life, grace and truth to the world around us as we await the consummation of the fullness of his work. These are glorious things that God has done in Christ, that God has promised in Christ, that God has fulfilled in Christ, and that God holds out before us as he works towards that final day when we will see the fullness of the consummation of Christ's work. And it sounds absolutely glorious. And you may be listening to this and thinking, well, that's nice, but I don't feel that way. I really don't feel glorious. I feel tired. I feel weary. I'm depressed. I don't seem to be able to conquer my indwelling sins that are always 
nipping at me and grabbing me and trying to take hold of me. I'm, I'm anxious. I'm, I'm burdened. And sometimes, to be quite honest, it doesn't seem like the gospel is changing much of anything in my life. And sometimes I wonder if it's even true. Well, I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 77 because you're not the first person to ever have felt this. I'm going to be spending a little bit of time in Psalm 77. If you have your Bible handy, that will help you. Psalm 77 the psalmist is not well. The psalmist is crying out to God, crying out aloud to God. In the day of trouble, seeking the Lord, in the night, stretching out his hand without wearing, his soul refuses to be comforted. He, he thinks about God and he moans. He tries to meditate on God. His spirit faints. He can't sleep. His eyes won't close. He's so troubled he cannot speak. And he's looking over his situation. And he's looking back in his life. And the psalmist says, you know, let me meditate about what's going on here. Let me search through what's going on here. Because it seems, verse 7, the Lord is spurning me forever. It seems that I will never again feel his favor. I don't have a sense of his steadfast love. Has it stopped? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has he forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? This can be the experience of the child of God. We have all these glorious promises in Christ. But then in the grind of everyday life with all of its problems and all of its burdens and all of its weights, we sometimes think to ourselves, well, why? Can't I feel that glory? And so that's a very realistic thing that the Christian can experience and face. But look how the psalmist deals with it. The psalmist doesn't look to his or uh, to their own feelings and look inside. But the psalmist, verse 10, does an important turn here. Then I said, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. He, he looked at his own years. He looked at his own life. He looked at his own experience. And that did not bring him a lot of joy or comfort or encouragement. He says, I'm going to look at the years of the Lord. The years of his power. The years of his holy and sovereign government of the universe and of the church and of the world and of my life. And I, verse 10, will, verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. And what does he see? He sees a God who is holy. He sees a God who is great. He sees a God who works wonders. He sees a God who shows himself to the world as mighty God, almighty Father. A God who with his own right arm has redeemed his people for himself. A God who opened up the waters of the sea and brought his people out of Egypt through the sea, leading them to the promised land. So what is the psalmist doing? In the psalmist's despair and really not feeling much glory in anything, 
The psalmist stops looking at himself. He stops looking at his own experience. He stops looking at his own pain. He stops looking at his own affliction, his own despair. And he looks at God. And he looks at God's works, God's mighty works of salvation. And he knows these are historical truths. These are immutable, unchangeable historical truths. And he says, that's what I'm going to focus on. I don't see it right now. I don't feel it right now. It doesn't seem real to me right now. But I know it's real because I know that this is who you are. You are a God who keeps his promises. You are a God who said he would save his people, and you did. We have the evidence. We have the circumcision. And we have the Passover the circumcision is the mark of the covenant which declares that God has set his people apart from a world of sin, that God has cut off the filth and the shame of their sin. And the Passover is the testimony that God has brought his people out of Egypt and led them to the promised land. This is who God is. This is what he has done. And it is testified to in those Old Testament sacraments of circumcision and the Passover. And so what the psalmist is doing right here is he's doing the same thing as the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 50, where the psalmist writes this, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. That's enough to have the promise of God. The psalmist doesn't say, this is my comfort in my affliction that you took away my pain. This is my comfort in my affliction that you made my life all hunky-dory. Everything's fine now and all happy and there's no problems anymore. That's not what he says. This is my comfort in my affliction. The affliction's there, it still hurts. But my comfort is this, that your promise gives me life. Now, why? How? How and why does God's promise give me life in my affliction? Because God is who he says he is. And God does what he says he will do. Now, we looked at the psalmist. He realized this back in Psalm 77, back in the Old Testament. And he had some things to look back on, some testimonies of the mighty acts of God, the acts of creation and redemption in history. But we have a lot more. We have so many more things to look back on. If you, if you look at the Heidelberg Catechism question answer 22, it, it, it describes the creed in this way. All that is promised us in the gospel. That's one way of talking about the creed. It is the promise of who God is and what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do. That's, the, that's the, the character of the creed. Now, these are the promises that God seals to us in the sacraments of baptism and the Holy Supper. In the sacraments of baptism and the Holy Supper, he pictures before our eyes who he is and what he has done. And so we go through life, 
And life is often tough and hard, and there is affliction and concern and worry and anxiety, and we don't always see right in front of us. We don't always experience the glory of the world to come. But right on our bodies, even in the greatest affliction, right on our bodies, we carry the mark. We carry the sign that God is faithful to his promise, that God keeps his promises. You can't run away from it. You can't be apart from it because it follows you wherever you go. The sign and seal of the covenant in your baptism. And this is what it says. My child, this is real. Real water really washes away real dirt. That's real. You know that because most of us wash every day. We know how that works. Water removes the dirt. And then God says, my child, as real as that daily washing is, so real is it that the blood of Jesus Christ and that the Spirit of Jesus Christ wash away, scrub away the impurity of your soul. So the devil comes and he says, what a loser you are as a Christian. You don't have faith. You're not strong in faith. You're not strong in sanctification. You're full of anxieties and worries, and you really are not a good Christian at all. And look at all the sins you commit. Look at all the things you say wrong and think wrong and do wrong and all the things you neglect to do. What a miserable excuse you are. And then we do as Martin Luther would do. We say, get away, go away, Satan. I am a baptized child of God. And that means that I am clean. I am clean. I am pure. I am righteous. I am innocent. There is nothing shameful in me before the eyes of God. I am wholly acceptable to him, as acceptable as Jesus himself is. That's what your baptism is preaching to you every moment of every day. Don't forget it, brothers and sisters. The sermons only happen once a week, and Bible studies happen from time to time, and we have our daily readings of the Word, but your baptism is always preaching this truth to you, that you are clean, holy, and righteous in the blood of Christ. And then the supper. There's the promise of baptism. There's also the promise of the supper. Christ, he calls us to assemble and sit at the table. The bread is broken and the wine is poured. These are real things. We can see them. We can smell them. We can touch them. We can taste them. We can chew and drink in the gospel in the sacrament. These are real things. And God comes to us also in the Lord's Supper with the promise. My child, it's real, isn't it? It's so real. Well, that's how real it is that the body of Christ was broken, not just in general, not just randomly for, for whoever. No, the body of Christ was broken for you. 
And the blood of Christ was poured out for you, for you specifically. And so I take and I taste the elements, the bread and the wine. It's real. It's really happening. I'm ingesting these things. And as bread and wine give strength to the body, so Jesus says, I promise you. That's how real it is that I am nourishing your hungry and thirsty soul. That's how real it is that you live in me and I live in you. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And I'm pouring my spirit. I'm pouring my grace. I'm pouring my life. I'm pouring my love into you. Well, we know the saying, you are what you eat. If you eat a lot of junk food and not nutritious stuff, then your health will not be good. It's not going to be good. That's why mothers are very careful to carefully uh, nourish their children with the very best food so that they grow healthy. You are what you eat. And so when God nourishes us, when he pours himself into us, He's feeding us with the bread from heaven. He's filling us with the life-transforming power of the world to come. And so you would expect that that would be manifest, that would make itself clear to us and to those around us. That's the promise. The filth and the corruption of the world of sin is washed out of our soul. And the life of the world to come is poured into us, changing us and preparing us for glory. These are the promises of God in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. These are the, uh, the precious promises of God that the sacraments seal to us. Now, how do we know that this is true? Well, we know this is true. Because all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. And so the word preached declares Christ to us. Baptism pictures Christ to us. The Lord's Supper shows us Christ. It's all about Christ. He is the way to the Father. All we have to do is believe. All we have to do is believe the promise, accept the promise, embrace the promise. If, if you're here this afternoon, if you're watching online now or later on, and, and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're thinking, well, I've got to clean up my life, and I've got to get myself a suit or a nice dress, or I've got to change this and change that in my life, and, and then maybe I will be worthy of becoming a child of God, you're wrong. That's not how it works. Come as you are. Come to the Lord with empty hands. In fact, come to the Lord with filthy hands filled with shame and guilt, and he will wash you clean. All you need to do is believe the promise, accept the promise, embrace the promise. That's all you need to do. And you may be thinking, I'm not sure I can do that. Because I'm weak, and I'm sinful, and I don't think my faith is strong enough. I don't 
think I really believe in a way which is enough for God. There are people right here this afternoon. You're beating yourself up and you're saying, I, I don't think that my faith is of such a quality that it is acceptable to God. I want to share with you a story about a theologian who was dying. A famous American theologian. He was facing death. He was a godly man. Been teaching the scriptures for, for much of his life. And he wrote a letter to a former student and another theologian. And in that letter, he said, I'm wondering if I can really die as a Christian. I'm wondering if I, can, if I really have the strength to hold on to my faith as I face death. I wonder if my faith is strong enough. And his former student wrote back to him and said this, Dear friend, let me advise you now as you often have me. If you were about to cross a deep chasm and there was a bridge over it, would you stand there looking in at yourself wondering if you trusted enough in bridges? Would you sit there thinking, I wonder if I have enough trust in bridges? Do I or do I not? in order to decide to be able to cross. Would you not rather go and examine the beams and the timbers of the bridge and the quality of its construction and determine whether the bridge were trustworthy and then pass over it in confidence? Our faith is in Christ. Spend yourself focusing on him and his sufficiency rather than on yourself. Do you understand the picture here? The devil wants us to get all caught up and looking inside ourselves and wondering, is my faith good enough? Is it strong enough? Is it worthy? Is it acceptable? Is it real? And Jesus says, stop it. Stop looking at yourself. Look at me. I am worthy. I am strong. I am acceptable. I am good enough. And you will never get anywhere if you're looking at yourself. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly what the sacraments preach to us. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, they just keep telling us over and over, don't look at yourself. Look to the Lord Jesus. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hold on to God's promises in Christ. He has fulfilled so many of his promises in Christ. And there are just a few left before we get to the perfect and the final and the eternal fulfillment of all of his promises. The gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth. The last elect person will be converted. The heavens will be opened. Christ will descend in glory. He will make all things new. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. And he will bring us home to dwell with him in eternal joy. Look to Christ and pray with the church of all ages. Come, Lord Jesus.
Maranatha. Amen.